Alexander, written and read by Oliver Gray, Chapter 7. English society can be difficult to comprehend. Even in the 21st century, it is riddled by class divisions. So, nestling alongside the mansions of Chilbolton Avenue, with their huge high-fence gardens backing onto the golf course, could be found the community of Stanmore. Built in the 1930s as a council estate, it was an attractive area. Solid red-brick semis straggled up the steep-sided hill and enjoyed panoramic views over St Catherine's Hill and the M3 cutting. It looked like a really nice place to live. About half of the inhabitants were in social housing. Many of them were salt-of-the-earth, hard-working people with low incomes. Some had large families. Others on the Stanmore estate had taken advantage of Margaret Thatcher's reforms, which encouraged people to buy their council houses. These were owner-occupiers, who tended their gardens assiduously and maintained their houses with a view to resale value. Then there were the many students who had arrived in droves in recent years due to the rapid expansion of the university. They lived in properties of multiple occupancy, which were ex-council houses bought by people like Diana Layton as an investment and split up into three, four or even five separate dwellings. Students, bless them, didn't have a lot of time to spend keeping things neat and tidy. So Stanmore, once a cohesive community, was quite a mixture, the main thing the residents have in common being a lack of wealth. And so it had a reputation. To outsiders, it was not the sort of place you'd walk at night. It had its fair share of problems and troublemakers. Its street names featured more often than other areas in the, in the courts column of the weekly news. Drug dealing, major and minor, petty theft, disputes between neighbours, domestic incidents. All of these fitted into the image, justified or not, that Stanmore had in the area. So it was with a sigh of resignation that Bird identified Barrymore's address as Thurmond Road, Stanmore. It didn't take long to find the address, as there were plenty of documentation to hand about Mort's history. Bird leafed through a few cases. In 1999, while still a teenager, Barry had been convicted for arson. He'd taken against a fellow pupil at King's School and stuffed a firework through his parents' letterbox at their house on nearby Badger Farm. He'd received a suspended sentence and an admonishment to change his ways. The next case Bird found was a brawl outside the Porthouse nightclub in Middle Brook Street. One of Mort's mates had spotted a guy from Portsmouth looking at his girlfriend and had laid into him, just the sort of incident the CCTV network had been set up to combat. By now, Mort had hooked up with a few other problem kids from the area and the concept of the Mort gang had become known. Mort and his friends had been ejected by the bouncers, but the hapless visitor, leaving the club at 1am, had been jumped on by the waiting gang outside McDonald's. Video footage had clearly shown Mort stamping on the victim's head. For this, he had received his first custodial sentence. Bird continued looking through the case documents. Mort was clearly involved with drugs. He had minor convictions for possession and a major one for distribution of Class A drugs, crack to be precise. But the main way in which he was a menace to society was extreme violence after excessive consumption of alcohol. One case was of particular interest to Bird, as he had been peripherally involved in it as a junior investigating officer. 
In July 2006, the city's annual hat fair was coming to a close. This was a festival of street theatre for which Winchester was renowned. For a long weekend, the streets were filled with musicians, clowns, illusionists, jugglers, comedians and acrobats, all of them performing for free but hoping that passers-by would put money in their hats, after which the festival was named. As it was a Saturday night, a few lads from Southampton had pitched up in town on their way home from an away fixture. The band was playing on a makeshift stage in front of the Guildhall and people were dancing. The Southampton guys got a bit boisterous, and one of them, while dancing, accidentally elbowed a Winchester bloke called Ray Matthews in the stomach. A few punches were thrown, but it soon calmed down and the party continued. However, Matthews was still angry and wanted revenge. He walked down the high street to a pub where Barry Mort and his mates were playing darts. Within minutes, Mort and his mates were back in the Broadway. One of Mort's mates lived in the city centre, so, as they passed, they picked up weapons from his flat in the form of a hammer and crowbar. Without hesitation, Mort walked straight up to the guy Matthews pointed out and smashed him on the head with a crowbar, knocking him unconscious. Apart from the fact that it turned out he had hit the wrong person, in Barry Mort's warped mind he had only meted out justice. However, there were numerous witnesses who had seen it all, and the judge saw it differently, sentencing him to three and a half years and pointing out that the victim was lucky not to have been brain-damaged or even killed. He sincerely hoped that Mort would have learned his lesson that violence was never acceptable. It was this case that Bird and Jackson were mulling over as they slowly negotiated the speed bumps of Stanmore Lane on the drive to visit Barry Mort. As far as they could ascertain, he'd remained unemployed since last being released from prison, so ought to be at home. I don't like to jump to conclusions, said Jackson, in what Bird took to be a direct reference to the over-hasty arrest of Ben Walker. But it looks very much as if Mort is our man. The Hatfair case is almost identical, hitting someone you don't like over the head with a blunt instrument when you're drunk. Premeditated, too. Hmm, and I don't like to stereotype people, replied Bird, but I've met Mort before, and he's going to fulfil every prejudice you may have. A small woman in her thirties opened the door. Her hair was scraped back off her forehead into a ponytail, and she wore pink jogging bottoms and a fake Hollister sweatshirt. Good morning. Is Barry Mort at home? What do you want? If it's about the council tax, we played it yesterday. Bird produced his ID card. A hamster constabulary. We'd just like a quick word, just some inquiries we're making. Baz? A girl called up the stairs. Someone wants to speak to you. Guess what? It's the police. Footsteps clumped down the stairs and Barry Mort appeared, pretty much as Bird had remembered him. He had a red, unshaven face and a shaved head with two earrings in each ear. His off-white singlet vest revealed both arms tattooed from waist to shoulder and disappearing down his chest. A spider's web pattern covered his neck. When he opened his mouth, his teeth were uneven and brown, and even at a metre's distance, his breath smelt of last night's tobacco and alcohol. The look he gave them was a mixture of defiance and scorn. Police? What have I done now? Why me? I ain't done nothing. Oh, that's okay, because we're not accusing you of anything. We'd just like to ask you some questions. Barry sighed and opened the door for Bird and Jackson to enter a front room, which was pretty much what they'd expected. Yes, those self-fulfilling stereotypes again. There were empty cans of white lightning cider lying around among the cartons of not-quite-finished Domino's pizza. 
clothes hung steaming on a clothes rack in front of a gas fire. The house was obviously populated by heavy smokers because the smell was overwhelming. Thank goodness there didn't appear to be any children in this relationship, because to heaven help any little mite having to crawl around amongst all the junk. Peering into the kitchen and looking at the crockery piled up in brown water in the sink, Bert hoped that they wouldn't be offered any tea. On the other hand, Barry and his partner didn't seem to be the tea-offering types. So, what do you think we're here about? That fucker who tried to strangle me at the station. I'm glad you're here. I was going to come down to you and get you to charge him, but I knew you'd just try to blame me for it. With my record, I'd have ended up getting charged instead of him. Uh, don't you think we may be here looking for drugs? You can look all you like, but you won't find any. Listen, I promised I was going to stay out of trouble, and I will. Prison is shit. I won't have any drugs in the house because I've had therapy and I've changed. Shelley is pregnant. Oh, God, there was indeed a little bump there, Bird noticed. And I'm not going back in. I've got witnesses who say you were drunk, violent and aggressive on Monday night. Is that your idea of starting a new life? Barry looked, as far as he was able, abashed. He clearly knew he had some explaining to do. Why don't you tell us what you remember about Monday night? It was shit. My anger management mentor told me a few beers were okay, but nothing more. The problem was that I won £200 on a bet at Stan James. I put money on a horse called Mortified, and it came in at 100 to 1. So that was good, not shit. It was then, but I went to a pub to celebrate. I called some friends to come down, and before I knew it, I drank too much and was getting leery. Jackson remembers seeing a dispute at an Indian restaurant being logged in the insulin book. It wasn't you lot at the Gandhi, was it? Yeah, bastards tried to overcharge us. Well, that's what I thought. Uh, I'm not a racist, of course, but... His voice trailed off. Anyway, I remember my cousin Gary said he was playing at this station, so we all went up there. We've been told you tried to barge in without paying. I wasn't fucking going to pay to see my own cousin. You're joking. Cunt wanted fifteen quid. No fucking chance. Like so many English people, Mort seemed completely unaware of any possible offences almost uninterrupted use of swervers might cause. He obviously moved in circles where this was completely normal, but Bird at least tried to turn him down a bit. Barry, please moderate your language before you continue. Mort seemed startled by the request, but at least offered, Sorry, mate. I'm not your mate, thought Bird, but didn't want to interrupt the flow. OK, so you're in there. What happens? I quite liked the band. They were good. Then we went out for a smoke. So why did you come back? I don't know. We had a few more pints while that fat yank was singing Cornish Wafer or whatever his name is. Had you seen him before? I'm trying to work out why you went back in. Yeah, I met him outside earlier on. He was going out the front door when I wanted to come in. He was so fat he nearly pushed me over. So I pushed him. I get funny when I've been drinking. That's why I'm cutting down. I was going to hit the fucker, but my mate stopped me. So, later on, I thought I'd go in and see what he sounded like. He seemed like a right cunt to me. So what happened? Uh, he was singing that shit old song, Barry laughed. What's it called? Shag My Dad? It was crap. He wasn't even in tune. All I did was echo him a bit, and then he went for me. He attacked you. This was a novelty, somebody attacking Barry for a change. Bird had already heard descriptions of the scene from others, but he wanted Barry's version. Fucker had me up against the wall. He's a big fucker, er, uh, bloke, and he's strong. I nearly passed out, then he suddenly let me go and walked out. I'd have gone after him, but I couldn't breathe. 
This pretty much tied in with everything that everyone else had said so far. But Barry was in full flow now. Anyway, why are you talking to me all about this? All I did was shout out a few rude comments. That cunt tried to bloody strangle me. He's the one you should be arresting. Jackson looked at Bird, then both of them looked back at Mort. Don't you know? Know what? We can't question Corey Zander. Someone killed him in the car park of the station. Silence. Shelley moved in and took Barry's arm. You don't think Barry done it? He ain't like that no more. Barry was almost beyond speech. No, 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 no. I shouted a bit, that's all, and he attacked me. Bird looked at him. His response certainly seemed genuine, but to him it looked like the regrets of a guilty person who'd been found out. Here's how it looks to us. You were drunk, violent and aggressive. You have a record for assaulting people with weapons like iron bars. We think there's a good chance you killed Corey Zander, and we'd like you to come with us. Southampton Airport at Eastleigh was surprisingly busy at 6am, full of business travellers setting off to Amsterdam, Paris and the Channel Islands. Even at this time of day there was plenty of traffic on the M3, so Ben had cut along the back road through Twyford and Albury. The display monitors went from on time to landed to luggage and haul. Ben had distinct butterflies. The situation was unprecedented, and he had no idea how to deal with it. No words he could come up with could possibly be appropriate. He tried rehearsing a few phrases of sympathy, but nothing seemed to fit. Passengers started to stream through, mainly men in suits carrying laptops. There was no mistaking Lucy Cruz. A slight, slim figure in jeans, her ash-blonde hair with a fringe was sculpted into two pigtails. She pulled a little green suitcase on wheels, like a mini version of her father's luggage. Ben hadn't made a card this time, confident that he would recognise her. He walked forward, holding out his hand, but he hadn't reckoned on Lucy being American. Her embrace was close, her body almost childlike, as Ben found himself, very un-Britishly, putting his arms around her. Her body shook as she sobbed. For forty-eight hours, she'd needed to release her emotions on somebody, and the time had come. Ben found himself leading the way to the car park, pulling the suitcase, and with Lucy attached to his arm. It felt strange, but in among the jungle of mixed emotions, it felt good. On the way back to Winchester, he tried to explain what had happened in a way that would make some sort of sense. So they accused you of killing my dad? Are they crazy? Well, they just went for the most obvious suspect, but now I think they're feeling a bit foolish. So what about this Mort maniac? He sounds like a total douchebag. He is, and if they don't investigate him, I'm going to go in and kick up a hell of a fuss. Corey's body was in the mortuary at the Royal Hampshire County Hospital in Romsey Road. As next of kin, Lucy's role would be to carry out the formal identification, and the time had been set for 3.30 that afternoon. In the meantime, Ben was unsure what to do. First he drove to North Walls, where he introduced Lucy to DCI Bird. This was his first meeting with Bird since being charged, so Bird took the opportunity to apologise for jumping the gun. Well, cheers, replied Ben. You might as well apologise for pretty well ruining my life. No smoke without fire, mud sticks, you know what they're all saying. Bird resorted to the standard line. I'm sorry, sir, I was only doing my job. Lucy just looked at the floor. The grief, the craziness, the politics and the practicalities all combined into a perfect storm of baffling intensity, as Bird explained her duties. 
After the body had been formally identified and the pathologist's report had been filed, the body could be released for her to arrange for repatriation. Horrible. It sounded like the fate of a soldier in Afghanistan or something. Ben didn't know what to do about accommodation for Lucy. There was no room at his place, and his relationship with Robert was now such that he couldn't ask him or Diana. On the other hand, hotels in Winchester were prohibitively expensive, and he knew Lucy wasn't well off. In the end, he found bed and breakfast for £35 in the first in, last out, a pub in Eastern Lane that had garnered a terrible reputation in a recent hotel makeover programme on TV. It wasn't ideal, but it would have to do. So he dropped a jet-lagged, tired and drained Lucy off there, promising to return at 3pm. Ben's next stop was school. He could put it off no longer. Robert was on playground duty, but got another member of staff to take over when it was obvious that the children, whispering and pointing, were disturbed by Ben's presence. Even the other teachers avoided meeting Ben's eyes. I'm asking if I can be reinstated, said Ben, in view of the fact that I'm no longer a suspect and the police have apologised. It's not up to me, I'm afraid, replied Robert. The formal decision has to be made by the governors. How soon can they decide? I'll have to organise another extraordinary meeting. It'll take a couple of days. In the meantime, you'll have to remain on suspension. Ben explained the situation to Lucy when he picked her up. At least it meant he was free to help her out as she went about her tasks, the first of which was to identify her father's body. It was raining, of course, as they paid for the hospital car park. Ben felt desperate as he sat on the red plastic chair in the stark, brightly lit waiting room. He'd seen enough episodes of Silent Witness to well imagine the scene behind the closed door. An official would pull back the white starched sheet over Corey's head to reveal the grizzled, bearded features. Lucy would nod silently, maybe kiss him one time, then step back as the shroud was replaced. It was the kind of situation most people would hope never to have the misfortune to find themselves in, and Ben could only guess at the desolate feelings which would be overwhelming Lucy. I knew it was him, and I tried to mentally prepare myself, but it was still such a horrible experience, she confided, as Ben drove first to the station, and then to Chilbolton Avenue, where he introduced Lucy to Diana. They had to collect Corey's possessions, such as they were. The guitar, the effects pedals, the CDs, and the remaining clothes and bits and pieces in his suitcase, which included a battered copy of Willie Flawton's novel, The Motel Life. Diana did her best to be comforting, describing how Corey had sung to her on the patio only a few days before. It wasn't really my sort of music, but it was very kind of him. Lucy was impressively willing to put a good face on, being polite and friendly to Diana, and even managing the odd smile. Ben and Rosie had agreed, by phone, that they couldn't subject Lucy to an evening alone in her tiny room at the B&B, so Ben took her back to their flat where Rosie made spaghetti bolognese and the three of them tried to make sense of all that had happened. Small talk was inappropriate, but Ben did suggest a few nice places in the area that they could visit while waiting for Lucy's return flight with her father's remains. The morning was spent at R. Steele and Partners, the undertakers in Chesil Street. It was obvious that the simplest and most practical arrangement would be for a cremation and for Lucy to transport the ashes herself back to Texas in her bag. This was preferable to having a coffin transported by plane, and also cheaper and less prone to red tape. A slot was booked for Friday at 1pm at Basingstoke Crematorium, 
a seemingly bizarre choice of location, but the nearest facility there was. Corey had come a long way from Tahlequah. In the afternoon, Ben took Lucy to one of the places he'd mentioned. He figured that she might like to see the kind of countryside she couldn't find in Texas. So he drove over to Bursledon, where the two of them walked for miles along the path which skirts the Hamble River. The sun decided to make a showing as they walked along the shingle path past the skeleton-like wrecks of generations of wooden ships revealed by the receding tide. They caught the little pink passenger ferry over to Hamble and stopped in a delicatessen for tea. Lucy wasn't exactly hungry, but made a half-hearted go at eating the toasted tea cake that Ben had brought her. Typically English, she explained. As they walked back, Lucy told Ben a little about her life in Austin with Corey. The two of them had been close, despite not being similar characters at all. She had been permanently worried about his unhealthy lifestyle, while trying to prevent him from being overprotective towards her. He would occasionally talk to her about her mother and her tragic death. That's why, Lucy explained, she would never have anything to do with drugs. Corey himself had fitted in well with the music community in Austin. There was plenty of work, both for him and for her. Once or twice they staged their own attempts at multimedia shows, where her artworks would be exhibited and Corey would play music to accompany them. They'd done one of those at the famous Waterloo Record Store, but it had ended in controversy when one of the staff had complained that Corey had groped her inappropriately. Corey had been asked to leave, and it was just as well he did because her redneck husband turned up shortly afterwards. There was no angel, Lucy confirmed. I think he'd have liked a longer-term relationship, but nothing ever lasted. That wasn't the only time he got into trouble for molesting women. One time, at my twenty-first birthday party, he tried it on with one of my friends and she threatened to call the police. Ben found it hard to imagine the overweight hobo he'd met having such an active libido, but thinking back to the cool Grams posters, maybe it sort of made sense after all. After an early dinner in the Jolly Sailor, a waterfront pub which Ben rightly hoped Lucy would view as quaint, vegetarian option was available, he dropped her back at the B&B. &B. The arrangement was that she would need to get on with all the bureaucratic things that had to be done, but that she could call Ben if she needed him. Unlike her dad, Lucy possessed a mobile phone. The main events of the next few days were the governor's meeting and the funeral. For the crucial meeting, Ben dressed in his best suit and tie, but he knew it would be an uphill struggle. Just walking round weak, he'd established that news of his release without a stain on his character hadn't exactly convinced the local population. Mothers grabbed their children's hands and crossed the road to avoid him. Fathers gave him threatening looks. One teenager, in a shell suit, even spat pointedly on the ground as he walked past, narrowly missing Ben's shoe. A brief conversation with Robert didn't help. Ben asked him for his support in asking to be reinstated. Uh, no can do, I'm afraid. But why not? I've done absolutely nothing wrong. It's not fair. Listen, Ben, I'm not daft. I found some stuff on the patio, brown stuff, wrapped up in cellophane. I grew up in the 60s, so I know what's what. But that's nothing to do with me, isn't it? That's strange. Rosie told me you went all the way to Millbrook to get it for him. Ben went briefly cold, then flushed in anger. He'd only told Rosie on the strict condition that she would never breathe a word about it. I take it your silence means that you haven't got anything to say for yourself. The point is, you're tainted, Ben. 
It'll take me years to rescue the school's reputation as it is. No way can I recommend to the governors that you're a suitable person to remain employed at St. John's. And so it was. At the meeting, racked with nerves to the extent that he could hardly speak, Ben explained that it had all been a mistake, that the police had acknowledged the error, that he was a dedicated teacher with a good track record, and that there was no reason he shouldn't be reinstated. He brought his union representative with him, who agreed with all he said. If it was down to us, I'm sure there would be no problem, ruled the chairman of governors. But we have the reputation and welfare of the school to consider. Feelings among parents and pupils are running high. Mud sticks, I'm afraid. And, crucially, the head teacher feels unable to offer you support. So I'm sorry to say that your suspension is upheld. And that was that. The NUT rep assured Ben that he would be able to appeal, that they didn't have a leg to stand on, and that lengthy litigation could ensue but that he had a good chance of eventual victory. Ben, however, was completely demoralised, and his reaction was to think along the lines of Stuff you, stuff your school, stuff your job. Dinner back at the flat that evening was ultra-tense, as Rosie was now truly involved in the fallout. Ben was furious, not only at her betrayal, but at her father's behaviour. Both were inextricably linked, and Ben now felt alone and abandoned. You promised not to tell him. Oh, I know, but he confronted me with the stuff and it just slipped out. He promised not to tell you, I told him. Bloody hell, all this promising this and that and not telling this or that, it's like being back in the playground with the kids. Truth to tell, Ben had been heartily sick of the job and the lifestyle anyway. During the course of the evening, he made the, de During the, course of the, evening, he made the decision that the most dignified thing he could do was to resign. He picked up his laptop and started to compose a letter to the governors. The gathering at Basingstoke Crematorium was a small and bedraggled one. Inevitably, there was a persistent drizzle as mourners arrived and waited outside the chapel for the previous ceremony to finish. Robert and Diana had agreed to attend out of respect, and Ben, Rosie and Lucy travelled with them in Diana's Range Rover. Andy and Sam from the station were there, as was Glenn Wallace. Glenn had told the local promoters about the tragedy, and a couple of them had travelled up from Southampton and Portsmouth. Finally, the guy with the Grams T-shirt was in attendance, without his wife. Surreally, the ceremony was conducted by a rock-and-roll vicar, a guy with a Brian May poodle cut, who claimed to be aware of the Grams' work. He seemed almost starstruck to be given this gig. The coffin entered to the sounds of the Grams' instrumental track, Desert Grave. The rocking vicar gave a well-researched speech in which he summarised Corey's career and read out some tributes which he'd found on Facebook. "'Rest in peace, brother,' said Sam Baker. "'Your songs will stay with me forever,' said Caitlin Carey of Whiskey Town. Lucy, truly a fish out of water, somehow managed to read out a poem she'd written about what a great dad he'd been and laid on the coffin a portrait of him she'd painted. And then, inevitably, the strains of Mad and Bad rang out as the curtains parted and Corey disappeared into the flames. You truly couldn't have made it up. Xander and Oliver's other books are also available in print and Kindle editions. For more information, head to olivergray.com. This audiobook was a DC 10 tonight production.